Hello and welcome to Wilberforce in Conversation, where we bring you discussion with Wilberforce Academy contributors. I'm Paul Huxley and today I'm in conversation with Sam Burgess. He is the author of the Wilberforce Publications book, uh, Edmund Burke's Battle with Liberalism, and he's one of this year's Wilberforce Academy speakers. Sam, it's good to talk to you today. Many of our listeners, um, including myself until quite recently, uh, will be more familiar with Michael Burke than Edmund Burke, uh, who you've written this book about. So uh, can you give us an idea, a brief idea of who Edmund Burke actually was? Yeah, of course. Uh, Edmund Burke is an Anglo-Irish statesman whose life broached the whole bulk of the 18th century. And uh, he was involved in all of the kind of serious major events in British politics during that period. He is best known for his work, Reflections on the Revolution in France, in which he argued that the French revolutionaries' uh, actions were going to upturn the state and were sweeping away the kind of constitutional and legal um, bulwarks that made the French state uh, a safe place. And of course, this was uh, to be justified when tyranny broke out uh, in the 1790s. That's great. So he was a, a politician rather than like simply a, an academic kind of theorist. He was actually getting involved in in legislation and in making speeches and these kind of things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Burke was primarily a, a politician, although the pamphlets he produced and the speeches he gave uh, show incredible theoretical insight. Uh, and he's... A, a rare thing insofar as a politician who brings uh, some really deep th- uh, theological and conceptual ideas to his political work. The two main schools of thought that you contrast in the books are Burke's view, which we call conservatism, and what's called contractarian liberalism. Can you explain what you mean by those terms or what the book means by these terms and what the main kind of features are of each of those views? Yeah, of course. Uh, so contractarian liberalism is an idea that went back to the early modern period. Uh, Thinkers like John Locke, for example, uh, proposed the idea of a social contract in which humans in the state of nature join together to form political societies. And the idea was uh, that humans have a natural right to uh, life, liberty uh, and equality. And there's a kind of autonomy Uh, posited in Locke's view of the human being. Now this was adopted by the philosophers in France and also uh, in England during Burke's era and it was an idea that Burke thought was politically very dangerous because it posed the idea of man as antecedent to communities, to legal structures uh, and to tradition. And Burke's concern was if if we try to abstractly Uh, renovate uh, our whole political order around this idea of man then we'll sweep away all of the structural preconditions that actually support the real legal rights which we do enjoy. So some of what contractarian liberalism comes out of um, it all sort of flows from uh, the Enlightenment and and like René Descartes view of I think therefore I am and the way he tried to prove all knowledge Mm. starting with starting with nothing and, and building it up from scratch. Yes. Um, but this is a political sort of version of this. Exactly right? that. So following uh, the success of Newtonian physics, um, there was a range of thinkers, including René Descartes, including uh, Thomas Hobbes in England, who 
proposed that we could, if we knew foundational truths about humanity, from that extrapolate in a manner similar to mathematics or geometry, this kind of ideal form of society that was founded on reason alone. And at the root of it is this account of the human person. Uh, and this, this was an idea that, that really worried Burke. I think in the book that you, you mention uh, he was... Uh, Burke was interested in the fact that we are born into particular relations with other people. Mm. Um, we, you know, we are born and we have a mother and a father and maybe sisters and brothers, um, and we are born into a particular role in society. Particularly in those days, we're more sort of uh, democratic and egalitarian now, I guess, mm. um, to some degree. But we are put into into relationships and into a culture that and a society that already exists. Um, we don't, we don't actually come into life as blank slates that uh, that are drawn upon yeah so burke's argument was that actually there is a broader theological order uh, that exists beyond this idea of just man in the state of nature we're born into a created order in which we have uh, implicit duties uh, uh, as well as rights and we have a relationship, a moral relationship, children to parents, husbands to wives, man to God. And communities and societies form over time. Uh, and Burke draws on the common lawyers for the idea that bodies of law are the prudential application of these moral principles over time. Um, and if we just sweep away all of that, and try to create a very abstract society founded solely on a priori human reason, then we really risk uh, a complete collapse and a descent into anarchy and chaos. Uh, And it's an incredibly prescient insight from Burke, because in some ways um, it not only anticipates the French Revolution, but also things like the communist revolutions of the 20th century, in which the children of revolution are consumed by their own revolutions because they sweep away all the structural preconditions which sustain actual societies. And so when we say, when we call it conservatism, Mm. then we're talking, are we talking about um, conserving a particular model for society or, or just generally the idea of going slowly with change because we recognize that uh, all the body of law, this mm. common law that you were mentioning, that's been built up over time. It reflects the mm. wisdom of humanity as, as it's gone on for yeah. thousands of years. Um, therefore, we shouldn't change it quickly. I mean, yeah. is, that, is that what conservatism Well, at the means? basis of conservatism is this humility and a basic acknowledgement that man's reason is not imperious. It, it, it uh, is fallible and... Actually, what Burke saw was a deep pride, a human egoism at the heart of the French Revolution. So whilst Burke didn't actually use the term conservatism, and it's not a term that uh, came about until the 19th century, what he does argue for um, was interpreted later as conservatism. And it's basically conserving the good things that uh, uphold law and order uh, and Burke would have added probably standards of morality and decency 
in our society. Where does God fit into all of this? Because because the people people at that time were, were typically believers in God of some kind, whether it's a theistic Christian God mm. or if it's um, if it's a deist kind of idea of a God who set up the universe and let, let it get on with itself. How does Burke's conception of God and understanding of who God is affect his thinking? So when Burke is arguing against uh, the idea of man in the state of nature and the abstract political models that come from this, he saw them as rooted in uh, the atheistic ideas of the philosophes, uh, which you know you could say are deistic at best. A theological picture uh, posits far more than just human autonomy and human rights at the centre of political order. A broader picture encompasses the moral duties and obligations we have. Um, It encompasses humans as fallen, as sinful, uh, humans as creatures who require law and tradition and culture. And Burke brought all of these things to the fore in his reflections on the revolution. He offers a far more complex, nuanced and accurate account of of humanity than the very thin, uh, optimistic account that was posited by the revolutionaries. Yeah, that seems to be one of the the major contrasts between them, the idea of of Burke realising... the sinfulness, uh, natural fallenness of man, and that you you, know, you can't just uh, assume that everyone's perfect. Well, I think it's an important point that um, Burke acknowledges the idea of fallen humanity. At the time, there was an incredible optimism about man and man's reason and the ability of man to create a almost utopian society. And uh, the leader uh, of the French Revolution, uh, Robespierre, was known as the incorruptible. And he ends up being executed by other revolutionaries after tyrannically um, committing a great purge of those that he didn't feel were acting in accordance with reason as he saw it. And I think this is where Burke realises that unless we have a theological account of humans as fallen, then we're in grave danger, uh, and and not just fallen, but in need of being managed by legal structures uh, and by accumulated bodies of wisdom and tradition, then we're in grave danger of uh, lapsing into a kind of totalitarian state. So... That's all well good for, for his time, uh, Edmund Burke's time and what was going on in the French Revolution. These two sides of, of the kind of equation, um, these two different views, how do they translate to kind of modern thinking? I mean, you mentioned in one of your chapters about John Rawls and liberalism today. Mm. Um, what, does lib- what does the liberal view look like today? And is there, a, is there a similar conservative view? Or we're not simply talking presumably about the conservative party. Mm. Um, Where do the lines get drawn today on these kinds of issues? So what's interesting is that Locke's ideas uh, were seen as far too reactionary um, and far too dangerous in Britain, and they were never really taken up in British politics. Uh, We stayed with the sort of 
Christian constitutionalism uh, that we had had. And it wasn't until the second half of the 20th century um, where a Christian public discourse broadly declined in Britain um, that there was a resurgence of this liberal discourse. And uh, it was broadly given its form and content by John Rawls, uh, a very influential American academic, um, who offers an account of liberalism that has differences with that of Locke and the philosophes. But what it has in common is this idea of man as autonomous, reasonable, rational, uh, uh, equal and a bearer of rights. And culturally now, we're restructuring our society according to this idea of man, uh, no longer in public um, reason do we turn to the question of whether something accords with Christian faith. We ask the question of whether it accords with human rights or equality as conceived uh, by liberal reason. So in the book, you then go on to explain um, that six theory political principles of Burkean conservatism. Mm. Um, one of them is what we've mentioned about human fallenness. Maybe we'll go through some of them and, and you can explain mm. explain what the view is. So um, I put, put one of them down as a refusal of ideological claims mm. in general. Actually, I'm, I'm quite interested in this because some people would, would say that, you know, you know, I work for Christian Concern and um, you have this view of society and what it really should be like and you want to impose your view on society um is that an ideological claim um would what would burke think about that well the first thing to say is that nobody is uh suggesting an anti-democratic imposition of any views a culture and a people should ultimately be given the opportunity to make their choices and live with those choices uh but what I argue in the book is that Burkean conservatism naturally emerges from a Christian worldview. For example, the Christian doctrine of human fallenness leads to an epistemic and humility and the kind of political ramification of this is a constitution with checks and balances uh, and a body of law to govern human nature. Now, on the ideological point, uh, for a Christian and for pretty much most political thinkers and legal thinkers up until the mid-19th, 20th, early 20th century, the nature of humanity is ordered uh, by the fact that they are created beings, created by God. And any society, any uh, belief that is not that does not have that at its heart is going to create a disordered uh, and ultimately fragmented social order. So unless we nurture theological truths, um, then that's going to have ramifications for the form our polity takes. At the moment, we've got a society that I think we've, we're largely based on human rights, which is part, part of this um, liberal kind of view of the world. Um, if that leads to a disordered society... Um, what do we think about its long-term prospects? Um, is this a society that's going to hold together for a long time or, or is it going to collapse at some point? What, how do we think about that? 
Well, one of the interesting things is I think there's a real fragility to liberal societies because they claim to be based on reason, but actually at the heart of the liberal society is a metaphysical faith, and that is a faith in human autonomy, equality, and humans as rights bearers. Those are all metaphysical beliefs. Now, do we find those convincing beliefs that that is the natural human condition? Personally, I think without a broader theological account and a broader theological justification, those are very hard claims to sustain. And I think that uh, one of the reasons that we see liberalism becoming increasingly intolerant and domineering is because the only way to sustain that claim is really by shouting down others and just making the case that it is the case. So my concern is that there is a uh, real risk that either liberalism could become increasingly autocratic or it could be upturned by a host of ideologies which actually profess something that's more believable than that uh, founding myth of liberalism. And that provides some obvious stability, say, could be a form of fascism, yeah. could be a form of uh, radical Islam or, yeah. or, or something something where everyone knows exactly what the narrative is and, and what the... I think one thing you say in chapter seven, um, if a nation is to cohere, it must have a common identity. Yeah. So you think that potentially this understanding of everything coming from these human rights that that is inherently fragile and that any that there, another narrative could easily come along to yeah shake absolutely that up. i mean the idea that we can establish some neutral sphere in which nobody imposes any beliefs on anybody is a fallacy there will always be a dominant political and social discourse which you know will be inculcated on some level uh, whether by government policy or by news programs or by an educational syllabus um, and societies always have some sort of consensus about what their ethical and metaphysical views are they have to in order to cohere now the qu- what I'm arguing is that the liberal founding myth is fragile and actually what we had before, which is a more expansive theological account, is uh, a much more believable uh, basis for a society. You quote um, Lord Justice Law's judgment in a case that mm. Christian Concern had um, had something to do with, um, in which, um, if I'm remembering correctly, um, he talks about um, not giving any preference in any way to any kind of religion. Uh, and to someone's someone's own personal belief because it is to prefer the subjective over the objective. Mm. Is that right? If I got if I remember that right? Yeah, so it's a case uh, by Lord Justice Laws in 2010 and the premise of his argument is that no religious viewpoint can be publicly privileged um, and we should just operate according to some impartial account of secular reason. Now... Firstly, that fundamentally uh, is at odds with the history of the English common law tradition from Fortescue, John Selden, Edward Coke, Blackstone. All of these uh, common lawyers were perfectly clear that the common law of England was uh, only 
uh, valid to the extent that it was congruent with the divine law um, and congruent with Christian belief. Now, justice laws uh, seems to think that there is some idea of secular reason that can just operate in the ether. But actually, what Locke and the early moderns identified is that reason always operates according to certain premises uh, and upon certain first premises. So uh, culturally, what we have now is the idea of reason which operates according to the liberal conception of man as autonomous, free, equal, and a bearer of rights. And that's the sort of reason that Justice Laws is referring to, uh, whether he knows it or not. Our whole uh, history as a nation, our ethical identity, our political identity, uh, many of our key social institutions are deeply indebted to theological ideas and are incoherent outside of those ideas. You say in the book that you think that going back to these fundamental arguments might give us um, give us a way through some of the issues we have currently in society where we have a fragmented society and, um, and dangers on different sides. Um, what practically, what practical kind of things could we learn from Burke about what you know, policies that we might go for now, um, ways in which we can move from where we are to something better than, uh, than what we've got? I think what we can say is that uh, and, and Burke's point is that theology gives us a set of principles by which we can approach politics. And uh, politically, for Christians in government or the law or other social roles, it is perfectly right that our broader theological account of the world informs the way that we see our work uh, and the judgments we make. I just want to go back to the point about human fallenness and, and one other thing you mentioned. Does the liberal account of the world lend itself to, does it tend to um, pull all of the power into one person or at all? How does that? It's an interesting point. And I think in its emphasis on man in the state of nature as uh, the focus of society um, there's a real danger that it esteems human reason and human autonomy uh, to an extent that doesn't uh, resonate with history as we know it um, when we look at the character of humanity as we see it in the 20th century actually we see that humans, human reason left to its own devices can come up with abominable forms of government. It can come up with uh, individuals who have nothing but a will to power uh, that ends up destroying millions of lives. And I think that that fundamental optimism about human nature and a disregard for community, tradition, law established political structures and a preference for enlightened human reason does lend itself to sweeping away many of the checks and balances that prevent uh, the sort of dictatorships we saw in the 20th century and I don't think it's a coincidence that when the French revolutionaries tried to instate 
the reasonable society founded upon the rights of man as they saw it, one of the first things they tried to do was extirpate all the remnants of the Christian religion in society. You know, they even got rid of the seven-day week. Um, and the result was the massive centralization of power in the hands of very few and ultimately tyranny. Now, the American government system obviously is known to be one of checks and balances. Mm. Now, how, although it was perhaps not so, um, not so inspired by Burke mm. and maybe more inspired by the kind of thinking of Locke, is that fair to say? So, how does that? America's a very interesting case because at the beginning of uh, American political history as we know it, um, you have two different competing interpretations of what's going on at the American Revolution. When the revolution first started, Burke supported the American Revolution and that's because he thought it was of a fundamentally different character to the French Revolution. It wasn't people claiming the abstract rights of man. It was people who saw themselves as British citizens claiming the rights of Englishmen under the English common law. And Burke said, well, they're not being given their rights as Englishmen under the English common law. And as the revolution evolved, there were different, two different streams there was the Jeffersonian account, which is far more Lockean in its nature. And then there was the account by people like John Adams, who uh, saw it as a far more conservative revolution. And John Adams was actually mocked by a French philosopher who said, all you've done is... Uh, in America, reproduce the exact same forms of established English law. You've got the English common law, you know, the English parliamentary system, and you haven't innovated anything new according to, you know, the abstract rights of man. And John Adams simply wrote back saying, well, that's because it works. And the American political structure and the American legal system uh, owes a huge amount uh, culturally to, to Britain and it saw itself in fundamental continuity with Britain and I think that that tension between the Jeffersonian account and uh, what we can call the Adamsian account yeah. is uh, still there in America um, and it is still I think a source of tension but fundamentally America works um, because it's had a continuity with established legal structures, established traditions, established Christian culture, um, and it didn't try to do what the French revolutionaries tried to do, which was, you know, on a tabula rasa, on a blank slate, starting again from scratch in accordance with a priori reason. So in the American um, society, then, you've got uh, rights recognised as having been given by God at least, um, you know, God, God's given an inalienable right. So that's a Jeffersonian that's a, idea. That's a Jeffersonian idea. Mm. Now, when we talk about human rights, mm. um, even the language of God having given them is, is missing mm. in, in a European context with the yeah. European uh, Convention on Human Rights. Um, does that make a difference in how, um, in how these things then work themselves out at all? Or, or, is it, or are the concepts basically the same functionally? 
So it's interesting because the origin of the, the discourse of rights was originally grounded in theological truths. If you go back to the 17th century and look at Hugo Grotius, um, the idea that humans have an innate right uh, to life, for example, and liberty is grounded in the theological belief that there is a dignity to humans as God's created workmanship. Um, and this is there in Locke, you know, in Locke's second treatise, he tells us that uh, humans have a natural right uh, to life because they are God's created workmanship. Now, what Locke does do is he makes his account so theologically uh, thin, the subsequent generations of liberals are able to basically just sever, God becomes this deistic being whose sole function really is the creation of humanity. And then subsequent generations of liberals, you know, rules for example, uh, severs God from the picture altogether. What I'd say about the modern discourse of rights is that I think it's basically incoherent because it doesn't have the broader theological picture in which it originated. And it applies this kind of legal lexicon to the idea of man uh, before he is in any legal structures or any political society uh, which can sustain that claim of rights. And if you've not got a, a God giving these, these rights and even the most fundamental right to life, then you also have the, the question which is very practical of when does that life start and when do those rights begin and are there other rights, say, to bodily autonomy and mm. all, all in the abortion situation, yeah. which can't be resolved at yeah. all because you don't go to a theological source and go, mm. okay, well, here's what the Bible says on this. Um, you don't even have a God to reason from. You just... yeah. You just make up your own mind. I think so. I think that's a key point. Is you know who enumerates these rights? What what are the specific rights? Where does the list end? And I think that's one of the problems, as I said, with applying a kind of legal lexicon to a theological acknowledgement that humans are created with an inherent dignity and value and worth. Um, so I think what. Burke argued in favour of and what the common law tradition long before Burke uh, always argued was that our legal rights, our common law rights, are a contextual expression in a particular time and place of things that are given to us because of that inherent dignity and worth. But the catch is they come with correlate duties and responsibilities uh, that arise from the social structures and communities and relationships that we're born into. You know, Burke says that even though children have not consented to have their parents, they nevertheless have duties towards those parents, just as they have rights uh, to receive from those parents. Uh, similarly, parents have duties towards their children. Uh, and you know that are that are concomitant with the rights that they have there is a sort of pragmatist element to it all 
we've got this history, we've got these traditions, and just pragmatically, let's let's not change anything too quickly. Is so. I think it's an important point about uh, pragmatism. I think what the Burkean would say is that the reason these institutions work uh, and these legal structures work is because they have a true perception of reality. And that true perception of reality is afforded to them by a broader theological account of man as sinful, um, fallen, in need of these checks and balances, uh, but ultimately uh, capable of redemption and good and forgiveness, the, 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 Christ, the Christian theological account of man. And I think if we have a true perception of reality, then we are far more likely to legislate and uh, make judicial decisions that are fitted for, um, that are pragmatically useful because they accord to the true state of things. Does that make sense? I think so, yeah. So tell me then, if someone's kind of intrigued by what you've been talking about, mm. um, Obviously, they can read Edmund Burke's Battle of Liberalism and they'll get a, a, a clear sense of lots of these things. Where else, where else could they turn? What other resources might be useful to, to kind of undergo these things? I'll put you on the spot a little bit here. So no, I'll keep on talking for a moment while I <laughs> No, that's while fine. Um, <laughs> well, firstly, I'd recommend reading Burke himself. He's, uh, the, some of the language might seem slightly archaic these days, but he's... Uh, probably as good a writer as you'll ever read um, and his reflections on the revolution in France is probably the uh, pinnacle of his work. Also uh, for a kind of more theological, theoretical account of um, how politics and theology relate, uh, someone like Oliver O'Donovan, um, The Desire of the Nations, is um, a, a good account of the relationship between theology and politics historically, but also conceptually. Well, thank you very much for talking with me today. Um, is there any, any are, you re, are you writing any other books? Is, is there anything else to come or are you, do you write in, in general? Is there any way? Yeah, I'm currently uh, finishing off a book on uh, conservatism and uh, I'm hoping that will come out in the next uh, 12 months or so. Excellent. So look forward to reading that then. Yeah. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Great chat. Thanks for listening to this discussion with Samuel Burgess. Please let me know if you have any thoughts or questions about what we've been talking about. You can email me at info at christianconcern.com. Uh, please do also like us on Facebook if you haven't already. At, that's at facebook.com forward slash ccfon. And please also sign up to receive our news emails at christianconcern.com forward slash sign up. Those emails will also let you know when there are more discussions like this. Thanks very much for listening and God bless.